One quick note before we start today's show. Uh, we recorded this yesterday, and as we were recording, um, in the middle of it, Joe Biden announced that he had talked to uh, Netanyahu and that he had called for a ceasefire. Now, at the time we were recording, we didn't know this because we weren't checking social media, etc. And so, uh, you know, we were going by the earlier information in which his only statement had been, uh, Israel has a right to defend itself. So please update uh, while you're listening and understand that uh, we had recorded this before. This is something we always worried about recording a day before, but this is also the first time that uh, the news has moved so quickly. All right, well, enjoy the show with Josh. Hello, welcome to Time to Say Goodbye. It is the uh, 17th of May, and we are going to do a couple episodes on this topic um, about what is happening in Palestine right now. And we have with us today Josh Leifer, who, if you watched the YouTube that we did with, with Jewish Currents, Josh was a big part about of that. He's who invited us on there and uh, somebody that we've had a lot of good conversations with, and we're really excited to have him here just to talk about a lot of what Jewish Currents has been publishing. Um, you know, I think that uh, it's been this really great mix of, um, you know, things where if you are not that familiar with what the situation actually is, like there's a lot of sort of servicey stuff, I would say, and I don't mean that in a uh, sort of pejorative sense, but like, you know, actual, like, I think a lot of people are seeing this for not the first time, obviously, they've seen mention of this you know, of what's been happening there before, you know, if, especially if they're over like 35 years old or something, they certainly have. But, you know, I don't think that a lot of people have gone out and figured out exactly what the conflict is. And so there's a lot of stuff there that is really helpful and uh, certainly has educated me. So Josh, welcome Thank you. to the show. Thanks for having me. It's really great to be on the show. I'm a, I'm a listener, a fan, subscriber. So it's, it's, good, to, it's good to be here. <laughs> oh, and Andy's here too. All right. So um, I don't know. I, I want us to start with a little bit of background here, because I think that there is a lot of stuff that people don't know, you know, and I, I, I thought that I was somewhat well versed on on what was going on. And I did find large gaps in my understanding of this stuff. And so I think that we can spend a little bit of time talking about sort of the history of this of this one particular area that's under that's being contested. And uh, yeah, can you just Josh, can you just tell us a little bit about the history of, of, of this area? You know, not, not Palestine directly, but this sort of contested area, this neighborhood, Sheikh Jarrah. Yeah, so the, the neighborhood of Sheikh Jarrah is in East Jerusalem. It's, it's an interesting neighborhood, and for a lot of reasons, um, one of which is, I mean, of course, what's been happening there for the, the, the political significance of it. It's also, in a weird way, where a lot of... Um, the diplomats and like the NGO core that it lives in the Middle East, like, or that lives in Israel, Palestine lives. And so there's like both um, very difficult scenes of like oppression and violence. And then also some of the sort of like, I don't know, nicer housing stock in like Eastern <laughs> East Jerusalem. But like the, the, the story of Sheikh Jarrah does go back um I mean, as everything in the Middle East does, goes back centuries. And and with this particular case, you have an area that is um, around the grave of 
a um, like a Jewish religious figure. So it was kind of a pilgrimage site. And that's how um, these two Jewish associations end up like really religious, like rabbinic associations end up owning um, the land where this neighborhood was because there was this tomb. Um, and uh, but during the 1948 war, the um, many Palestinians who lived in all over Jerusalem um, fled their homes. And some of the people who lived in West, Palestinians who lived in West Jerusalem fled to this neighborhood and basically lived there. And that territory was under Jordanian control after 1948. And then these families lived there. And then in 1967, um, in the Six Day War, Israel um, occupied East Jerusalem. And, and then in 1980, I believe, it formally annexed the, the territory. Um, and these families found themselves now under Israeli, um, Israeli rule. But it's, it's an important neighborhood because it's also close to the old city. Um, and so, I mean, every, Jerusalem is, is very, is like a walkable city. So if, if you were to go, for, I've been to, actually, I've been to these houses in, in East Jerusalem where, where this is happening. And so if you, it's maybe a 15 minute walk uh, maybe more, maybe 20 minutes from there to like the entrance into the old city where then when you walk into, you know, the, the what, what people, what an English sort of Israeli state inflected English, you can call like the Muslim quarter of the old, the old city. Um, and mm-hmm. so that's also part of its significance is that it's part, it's kind of part part of that broader space. Um, I mean, it's also the thing, and this just gets to why I think this is, or this is why this is such a, um, a site of of anti-occupation organizing and, and Palestinian organizing is is that the families, many of the families who now live in Shefterach lived in other neighborhoods in West Jerusalem. And one of the things about West Jerusalem is that a lot of the houses of the Palestinian bourgeoisie remained standing. They weren't destroyed in the war. And so Israelis in West yeah. Jerusalem like live in these live in these houses are living in the Palestinian houses. But the Palestinians who live in East Jerusalem, like the families in Sheikh Jarrah, they can't get back that property. There's no means for a Palestinian who left their home in what is now Israel to get back their property because under Israeli law, property that was vacated by um, Palestinian refugees is now under the control of the state that has the absentee property custodian. And that's, that actually, I think, is in addition to like the displacement of, their, of the families, it's that inequality about like who can get restitution is sort of at the core of of like the that's that's at the core of the political disagreement in a way. Like I just want to get us up to date just quickly for you know the listeners. So what are the events that 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 sort of touch this off, right? That um, you know led recent. to everything that people are saying. Yep, yeah, right. Over the and a lot of it you know seems to have happened over the past few months, right? Like uh, so, like it starts with sort of the barricading of a of what seems like a commercial district right so tell us a little bit about yeah that. so it's it's not a it's not it's it's not i don't know if i'd call it a commercial district there are definitely restaurants and shops there but there's basically an area called the damascus gate it's one of the main access points into the old city and it's these really nice i guess i don't know maybe they're limestone stairs it's kind of iconic jerusalem part of east jerusalem palestinian east jerusalem and people like to sit there and gather there especially during ramadan because you're fasting um, and it's a festive atmosphere and it's outside and the weather is warm. I mean, Ramadan historically has always kind of been, um, uh, it's a tense time in Jerusalem because 
there is a lot of resistance by the police and Jewish Israelis to like public displays of Palestinian and Muslim life. And also people are fasting and it's hot. Um, and so that time is always um, like a tense time. But yeah, so you have the Israeli police for some reason that not, no one really understands like in their own terms, what they were thinking decides to block Palestinians from sitting in this place where they usually are, are sitting. And that begins to set off kind of nightly confrontations with the police, you know, young people throwing stones or just kind of trying to move the barricades and then police responding with um, rubber bullets and rubber coated bullets and flashbangs. And um, then at the same time, you had this group of extreme right wingers come and march into Jerusalem to kind of show that like they weren't going to let, I don't know, like their impression was that you know, the, the religious right interprets um, displays of Palestinian life in pu like in public as a threat to the Jewish character of the city. And so they kind of wanted to assert the, the Jewishness of Jerusalem. And you know, it was a, they, they marched in and that spurred a whole sort of a lot of really ugly violence. I mean, these are these extremists are people who in various ways believe that the Arab population, the Palestinian population of, of Israel and even in the West Bank, should be forcibly transferred out. And so they are marching through the streets, shouting death to the Arabs. And in this, this time period was especially, May is a very intense time in Israel-Palestine because it um, marks the anniversary of um, Israel's independence, which is also Nakba Day, the day that Palestinians commemorate as like the Nakba means catastrophe in Arabic. It's also when right. Jerusalem Day is observed in Israel often, and Jerusalem Day commemorates the Six Day War and Israel's conquest of Jerusalem, which is by religious Israelis and religious Jews considered like a miraculous event. And there's this thing called the March of Flags, which is which is partially why I think the police wanted to get control over East Jerusalem. March of the Flags is another march of these right-wing extremists, like a planned one that happens every year, where like they have Israeli flags and they march through the Arab neighborhoods of East Jerusalem and they start singing um, religious songs and nationalist anthems that are a lot, that are really racist, basically, um, and, and theocratic also. Uh, and the right. Israeli police wanted to like, create a possibility for them to do this march without being interrupted by... Palestinians. And that actually didn't happen this year. And so all of this combined with the evictions that were happening in Sheikh Jarrah created this perfect storm in, in Jerusalem specifically, where there was just a lot of, like a lot, I don't like the word confrontation, but it's also hard to find another word to describe what was happening between Palestinians, the police and right-wing Israelis. And that all culminates when the police in consecutive nights decided to shoot tear gas and rubber coated bullets and set off flashbangs inside the Al-Aqsa Mosque. Right, right. So this seems to be the real, like this is the third holiest site in, in Islam. It is a place that has a long history of, you know, um, you know, first of all, people going there to worship, but also going there for pilgrimage, but also a lot of conflict around this one site. And it seems, and you know, like there's, I'd say there's like a history where there people, the Israeli police were trying to put in metal detectors there at some point, right, in the past. Like, it is a place where a lot of, you know, there seems to be a lot of questions about control and how much do does Israel have the right to, to assert any sort of control. So, like, well, just, you know, and this will be the last thing that we discuss about, like, getting people up to date, but, like, you know, like, 
What, what happens there? Yeah, the Al-Aqsa Mosque is, as you said, an important site, important site for Muslims around the world. It's also kind of a Palestinian emblem. I, I, in, the, in the piece that Mari and I wrote, I quoted this uh, Palestinian journalist who works for the Israeli public broadcasting uh, station. His name is Suleiman Masad, uh, Maswadeh, who explained it very eloquently about the, that Al-Aqsa is like the last emblem of Palestinian sovereignty in, in, the, ter- in the territory, mm-hmm. basically. It's, it's a place where um, it's run both by, um, in part, the Palestinians and in part something called the Waqf, which is like the Islamic holy sites uh, administrator. And Jordan also has a say in what happens there. But it is, a, it, is an, it is like the last place where like it's basic, it is primarily Palestinians and Arabs who have like main control over what happens there. Um, and um, it is not, you mentioned the 2017 protest that when they tried to put metal, when Israel tried to put metal detectors in front of it, set off these big mass protests where people were praying in the streets because Israel was blocking they wouldn't, people wouldn't go through the metal detectors to get into the mosque. But even earlier, like the second intifada uh, in 2000 was set off also by Ariel Sharon, who was at the time uh, um, prime minister of Israel, um, walking up to the Temple Mount complex and, and asserting Israeli control over it. It's so it's a very, very sensitive place um, because for the Palestinians to lose their say over this would, would kind of mean like the end, the total end, the last the last remaining um, point where they have some kind of agency, basically. Okay, great. I, I think that sort of catches people up and everything that you have seen is sort of the result of this, right? And um, I've, I'm sure that, cool. I don't know if you're listening to this podcast and I think that you have seen what's happening. If not, then, you know, go on, you know, Go look. Uh, Annie, do you? Well, like, how do those yeah. events, I just actually realized there's a gap in my understanding. How do these events in East Jerusalem culminate in all these attacks on the Gaza Strip, right? which is like totally in a different part of Israel-Palestine? Yeah, so there, another, another like, I don't know what the best term is, another fact, the, 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 what happened is it was, there are many, many reasons it's why, why, why now a war broke out, but in addition to the tensions in East Jerusalem around um, the city and religious observance and public life and, and, and Palestinian agency within the city, there was also planned, um, the first Palestinian legislative elections since 2006 were planned uh, for May 22nd. And Mahmoud Abbas, who um, is the president of the Palestinian Authority, canceled them under the pretense that Israel wouldn't allow Palestinians in East Jerusalem to vote. Um, now, Israel and the PA coordinate very closely. It was not a surprise to Mahmoud Abbas when he called the elections back in what I think it must have been February or so, that maybe maybe later, that, that Israel would not allow East Jerusalemites to vote. Um, it may have. It was in many ways probably convenient for Abbas to cancel the elections because Hamas would have likely had a good showing. And Hamas is the party that controls the Gaza Strip, but uh, they're the rivals to Mahmoud Abbas's Fatah uh, um, party. And Mahmoud Abbas, who's 85 and is very discredited among Palestinians, his party has had all these different splits, um, and they were very. They would have been very divided in this election. They would have had a terrible showing. And so Hamas was already threatening that if the elections were canceled, it, would, it wouldn't it would stand for this. And even before 
these events, there had been a few rocket fires fired from Gaza here and there, kind of by Hamas to show that they were like, they were preparing as well. And so at the kind of peak of the tension on the, well, I'm now trying to look at my calendar, make sure I get the date right. At the peak of the tension on like the 4th, the 15th or 14th, I think, Hamas fires a rocket towards Jerusalem to show that like, hey, you know, I think from the Hamas standpoint, I mean, it's, it's, when you when you listen to Israeli like uh, military analysts, they're very they they talk very frankly in a way that American journalists would never do. But they're like, this was a great achievement for Hamas because they showed that like they were the true defenders of Jerusalem. They were the ones who were willing to do this. They totally like they totally overshadowed Mahmoud Abbas and the PA and Fatah and um and Israel then felt the need to respond because you know they weren't going to stand for Hamas yeah. asserting its its itself in this way and you kind of end then you end up in this cycle of israel bombs and hamas fires rockets and the really sad thing about all of this is that there's no strategic there's no strategic end game for something like this israel has no strategy for preventing the rockets um from being fired from the gaza strip i mean it it could alleviate it could end the siege of the gaza strip it could try to (laughs) you know work towards reviving possibly some kind of two-state arrangement where, you know, that the occupation is over. They're not going to do that. They're also at this point, not going to reoccupy the Gaza Strip. So in 2000, uh, beginning in 2005, Israel took out Jewish settlers from who were living in the Gaza Strip. Um, And on the Israeli right, you hear a lot of calls like that's the the Israeli right. Extreme right solution is to like either to, um, commit egregious war crimes in the Gaza Strip or reoccupy it um, to assert control. But the but the toll that that would require, so it, because Israel has gotten very good at dominating the Palestinians, there is a very low appetite for um, civilian and military casualties in Israel. The public is not is very unused to high casualty events. It, it's been about 20 years since there was really a war that took a lot of lives. And or or suicide bombings even that claimed a lot of casualties, and so the the there there's no there's no real like popular will in like a strategic sense I guess to reoccupy the Gaza Strip even if that's like a slogan that you will hear people um, kind of saying in casual conversation. One of the things that I've been struck by is just how much attention has been paid to this right, um, and that. It doesn't seem like it is, like, I think there are very good reasons because obviously, you know, it's an escalation, as you said, that has not been seen in quite a while. But um, I feel like there's a portion of the population that anytime the conversation is about Israel just tunes it out, you know, and it seems like at this point that's not happening. Like, do you, do you, is, do you sense that as well? Or like, are you surprised by the amount of attention there is right now? Like, it's not just social media. I think it's also just the media, you know, like it is. You know, it's front page news all the time. And it's something that, you know, even I talked about with my normie friends, um, you know, which is always my gauge on it, which is like my lawyer friends are asking me about this. <laughs> and I'm just like, I don't know, man. <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> yeah, it's a good question. Oh, I, I read the same things you do, right? Like, is there, is there, are you surprised by the amount of attention that, that it's getting? Yeah, I mean, this is something that like you'll hear among 
certain there's like a segment of like the pro-israel community if you could call it that that like gets upset about this because it's it's like why is all well why single out israel for like why is all the attention you know there's i don't know like they'll say like, there's human rights abuses all over the world. Like, why is it? <laughs> right, right. Why aren't you worried about China? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. That's the classic one. We, I've seen yeah. a lot what of that. What about the Uyghurs? Yeah, what about right. India? What about Iran? What about, I don't know. Like, the, right. There's also been a right. flip where people are saying like pro-Palestine, anti-Uyghurs. Anti, anti I saw that on oh social media too. <laughs> but anyway, go on. Yeah, I mean, the po- <laughs> I guess, I guess it's, it's a consistent policy Andy's, if you think about Andy's it. Andy's feed is like 98% <laughs> tankies that he just follows. I get tagged on some threads. So don't worry yeah. about it. Yeah. Well, so the, no, the globalization yeah. of all this politics is really bizarre because I've started to get um, like BJP supporters attacking me in my Twitter mentions, which is, which is new. Oh, wow. Yeah, no. And there have been a lot of Hindu rights supporters of Israel, like tweeting out like pro Zionist Israel, Israeli figures, and then, anyway. Is, is, well, the, is it? I mean, outside of you know, we we don't need to devolve this <laughs> online yeah. tanky conversations. I mean, they're all like any broadly anti-Muslim like, statements, right? right? Anti-Muslim what's ideologies. The, what what is that? What so? What's the argument? What's what's the sort of like? Why are you so obsessed with us? Type of argument that's coming out of that that's coming out of Israel, Israel supporters. I think there's a feeling that Israel. I think to give that, I, if I were to venture, like, why is their best, like, the best spoken, uh, their best spoken, uh, you know, representatives? It would be something like Israel is held to an unfair standard in its conduct compared to other countries in the world. Um, and, you know, given the constraints that Israel faces and what it can and can't do uh, to secure its population, um, you know, it's really unfair the way it's judged is basically, I think, um, what they would say. You know, my response is always like, well, you are also the people who can't walk around saying that you have the most moral army in the nation, in the world. So, like, you cannot have it both ways right. where, you know, you can't say, well, how come you're not also criticizing Iran, but then also want to have the most moral army in the world? Like, that doesn't make any sense. Um, but I think it's undeniable that there is an outsized um significance in the western media uh or the, the palace israel palestine has outside outside significance i think it, in a lot of ways it's in part because it's like the longest it's not the, i don't know how to put this i don't know if, he's, if this is even true but it kind of is like the longest the last burning like decolonial conflict that was never really like resolved and with some finality i mean kashmir is another one but like the u.s it's u.s right. but like the u.s is also maybe Americans feel less implicated in some way. I mean, like the United States certainly treats Israel differently than it treats all other countries. I think that's a re- that's part of partially why there's a lot of attention. No, the United States has yeah. you know this memorandum, the memorandum of agreement that Obama signed and the Trump administration renewed, gives Israel something like three point two billion dollars a year over ten years, which is ba- which allows them to like buy, basically buy from the U.S. arms industry like the most technologically advanced weapons. So it's like both a subsidy for the U.S. arms industry and a sort of sweet deal for Israel in terms of military. Like there, Israel, the United States doesn't have that relationship with any other country, to my knowledge. And so you know, there's certainly an exceptional way that America treats it uh, treats Israel. Uh, I guess, like, uh, let's just talk about the American response a bit, because you end with this question about, like, what can what can the left do about this? Right. And that's sort of where I want to focus. And we should just say that, like, the Democrats, uh, I shouldn't say all Democrats, because obviously, you know, like uh, Ilhan Omar and um, Betty McCollum and 
Cori Bush all came out with statements in the House and the Senate came out with this. I don't know, like, what what'd you think about that? The Senate came out with this, like, declaration that there should be a ceasefire, basically, right? Um, so it's not, but Joe Biden went and just said, Israel has the right to defend itself, I think was the actual quote, and sort of what you would expect them to say. Were you, were you surprised by that at all? Were you, were you surprised by, like, sort of Joe Biden's kind of, hey, you know, like, uh, stuff's crazy over there, and, you know, if someone starts a fight with you, then you have the right to defend yourself, which is essentially <laughs> what he said. You know, like, basically, like, hey, man, you know, whoa, <laughs> Israel, <laughs> like, uh, there's a there's a lot going on there. It's super complicated. But, you know, if someone starts a picks fight with you, you 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 get to defend yourself. Like, I, I think that was basically the core of his statement. Right. Like, uh, no, I, I was not surprised by that at all. I mean, yeah, like he <laughs> Biden's record on Israel is not good in some ways. My, you know, my, my, my colleague, Peter Beiner, has written about this in Jewish Currents about Biden's right. Israel policy that in a lot of ways he undermined Obama's attempts to, to sort of rein in Netanyahu. Um, I mean, there is like, it's almost, Biden though, in his, win, in, his way, in his way, has like kind of been almost like a parody of what an American president does. Like he went and spoke to the PA president, Mahmoud Abbas, about like, Ending the you know ending hostilities, but Mahmoud Abbas has no say over what happens in, Ga- in the Gaza Strip. He the, his party was literally expelled from the Gaza Strip, right? And like, right, and right. not only that, but like Mahmoud Abbas's greatest fear is that the PA could be in jeopardy if like unrest in the West Bank and Palestinian discontent reaches the point where either you had something like this happened in the second uh, in the second Intifada where Palestinian security forces refuse like turn on Israelis like because the way the PA the PA is in like very close cooperation with the Israeli military um but like that you know could that balance be upset um you, there have been a few reports I've seen of protests against the PA by Palestinians in the West Bank so like Mahmoud Abbas has a totally different set of concerns than the ones that Joe Biden like grafted onto him in his statement it was just like completely absurd to me. Yeah, yeah. Do you think, Joe, yeah, yeah. Do you think Biden? Like, hey, why don't you call, call your boys, you know, and tell them to knock it off? Yeah, and Mahmoud Abbas is like, these like, aren't my boys. boys. Like, they kick me out. Like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. What yeah. are you talking about, my boys? Oh, um, do you think? Yeah, it it was sort of like it seemed like he was reading off some script from like 1985 or something. Or, you know, it was just so bizarre. I don't know, Andy. What do you think about about our president? Well, uh, I, I was wondering. Sorry. I've been reading, trying to read up on the history, and and one book I've been reading, the only book, sorry, <laughs> is Rashid Khalidi's Hundred Years War on Palestine, and he makes this claim that like you know Kennedy actually understood the world a bit more, but LBJ as an American just like kind of grafts like domestic analogies onto Israel Palestine and kind of undid a lot of the progress, quote unquote progress or understanding that Kennedy perhaps was going towards. I mean, not to get into like the '60s debate, but does I guess the question is like. You know, is Biden kind of? I assume he probably knows less about that part of the world than Obama does, right? Oh, Intellectually and although, like, personally, yeah. True. Although Biden's staff is really, you know, Biden's staff is the whatever. I don't know how to put this, like the creme de la creme of the, you know, U.S. Right. Foreign Service and dip- diplomatic corps. Like he, he's not. He's certainly being advised by people who know what they're talking about, especially on the Middle East. So yeah, I guess like okay, well then that that goes there. I guess. Yeah, the question is then is to go back to like Jay's question about is it surprising what Biden says? Um, 
to what extent is this about the Democrat, I guess, the aristocracy of the Democratic Party, right? Uh, trying to basically think about domestic concerns and placating domestic interests, right? Rather than like, you know, dealing seriously with the ins and outs of like Hamas and Fatah and, you know, the PA and all that stuff. Yeah, I, don't, I mean, I don't, I not, not, I don't want to say Glibbins be like, I don't think the, like, the Joe Biden cares about what actually happens. But I, I mean, obviously, domestic politics is their main concern. And I think, I actually think that what's interesting right now, because it's undeniable to me that the discourse has shifted. Like, I remember 2014 yeah. during the last war, you did not see the kinds of things that you've seen coming from members of Congress condemning Israel's policies and, and, and like, the, the, you know, the squad is very small, but they've made a, their presence has made a really big difference as far as I can tell in, in how this is shaping out. And even people who generally have been like extremely hawkish and are like APAC stalwarts, like Chuck Schumer have been more, have been more measured in the, usually, you know, usually there's no like restraints when this happens and Chuck Schumer's like, go, you know, Israel, you have our full support to do whatever you want. And also even someone like Bob Menendez, who's super conservative, has felt some need to like pay a little lip service to, um, you know, that perhaps like Israel might be in the wrong. And I think what that has to do is, is that there's a real, I think people aren't sure to what degree like Jewish voters who are overwhelmingly Democrats actually, like where is the line for, for losing Jewish support um, in American politics? Mm. Right, well, what, do you, what do you attribute to that to? You know, like you, you said that it's like, it might be that that Democratic, Jewish voters are not particularly, you know, as either th- that this might not be as big of an issue or perhaps their politics have changed because that that's sort of the center of what I wanted to talk about, which is that, you know, I think that this happened, you know, it also happened last summer where people are like, well, this is different, right? I believe Nicole Hannah-Jones wrote like a big essay in the Times Magazine being like, this time is different, right? But like, you know, like last summer did feel different, right? Um, this This current... I mean, I don't think that I ever would have seen the types of things that we're seeing on the streets of America right now, right? Uh, you know, in Chicago and uh, in Bay Ridge and in San Francisco, um, you know, also like just like last summer in cities that you wouldn't expect, right? Like uh, like small cities, I don't know, I think uh, places where perhaps you would not expect like a big protest like in Dallas, um, you're seeing... I didn't think that I would ever see like uh, somebody associated with the Kardashians <laughs> saying, you know, chanting uh, from the from the river to the sea. You know, <laughs> it's just like, whoa, what? You know, what, what do you attribute this sort of difference to? Um, why, why are things different now? Yeah, I, I I'm still trying to figure it out. I mean, I've been talking to people because I it it certainly feels different. I mean, I think it, it's related to the Black Lives Matter um, moment. I think that the and I think what that means more specifically is that. Um, in a good way, the politics of representation associated with the, with Black Lives Matter has been adopted by, say, um, people doing booking for TV. And so for the first time right. in a really, in ever, really, you have Palestinian policy experts and advocates and basically Palestinians themselves describing what Zionism and Israel me has meant like in their lives and to their families. And that perspective was totally not shared ever really by the American media. I mean, I was thinking about growing up watching 
wars that happens on CNN and it's like Wolf Blitzer in the Situation Room and then like someone in a flak jacket <laughs> on a balcony. Um, and, and like that's how the Middle East was reported on. And now maybe because like, sure. everyone got really comfortable with Zoom, you have the kind of global Palestinian mm. diaspora being able to speak on, you know, I was watching um, uh, an analyst from Al Shabaka, which is a Palestinian policy shop on CBS News. Um, you know, I think I think it's interesting that MSNBC has got, decided to go, like basically go for it on the Palestinian issue. Like uh, Mehdi Hassan is doing pretty good work and Ayman Moheldin is also, uh, you know, I guess they're the main two like Muslim anchors on U.S. cable news. Um, but they've certainly changed the way uh, people are talking about it. And, and I think that like, you never used to hear people say, I mean, you used to hear it within the left, but to hear people who don't necessarily come out of like a left-wing internationalist milieu saying like, listen to Palestinian voices. I think that is, that's a way that like the Black Lives Matter, po like politics of, of being able to like narrate your own struggle has, has been adopted for this, I think in a good way. Right. It, it, it's interesting because it's like, all right, so starting, um, obviously the links between Palestinian struggle and the black struggle in America have a very long history, right? But like, if we started in 2014 with Mike Brown and Ferguson, and this is something Cori Bush talked about when in her speech, she gave sort of credit to this Palestinian guy named uh, um, Bassem Masri, who you know, he was sort of, I don't know if people remember, but when you were watching the live streams from Ferguson those first two weeks, there was a dude who was very aggressive, you know, and I, I mean that in like a good way, you know, like he would sort of get right in the faces of the cops and it was arresting to watch, right? Um, and, uh, you know, he became one of the people who were at the forefront of the Ferguson rebellion and uh, he was Palestinian, you know, he was a Palestinian immigrant and he had lived in Jerusalem and he had, his family had moved to St. Louis and, um, you know, he's dead now because he died of a heart attack like so many of the former uh, Ferguson protesters. Um, but, you know, like it was, it was interesting to see almost immediately that type of metaphor being articulated out there. And in fact, a lot of the original Ferguson protesters did go to Palestine, you know, like after, you know, things had died down a little bit in Ferguson itself. Um, so Cory Bush is sort of on in Congress talking about this, right? Like sort of the, the metaphor itself. And I don't know, it's, it's interesting because to me, I think that part of what's driving the reason why it feels different is because it really is sort of a metaphor that people can understand in the same, and that a lot of these things that happen are now global, right? Like uh, what I think what, you know, Toby Hazlitt wrote about this in the essay that he wrote in M plus one recently that we talked about last, last episode, but the most touching part of last summer, and I've been touching in sort of like, you know, like a full bodied way, not like, you know, like, oh, that's great. Like, uh, was seeing protests everywhere. You know, there are protests in Korea, there are protests in, in uh, I, think, I believe Kenya, there are protests in London, there are protests in Belgium, there are protests in, uh, in Paris about over George Floyd, you know, and they had seen some metaphor that related to their own lives. And I, I don't know, I, I think that this is, there's like this, place where people really are identifying with Palestinian conflict in a way that is inspiring, but also is like, given the history of other causes 
you know, saying from Gaza to X, you know, I don't, I, it, it's interesting to see it just take off, you know, so quickly. Um, yeah. That's my, no, that's I think my they're thought. especially twinned in the American public imagination. I mean, I, I've been thinking about this a lot because I, in two, during the 2014 war, um, the year before I'd been living in Israel, this is part of my like design, like now I'm going to say like my designification. Like I, I, after I graduated high school, I went to, I lived in Israel for a year during my gap year and what was a pre-military program. And I went to college and the summer after my freshman year of college, I was when this war happened and I was working as a camp counselor for this program that brought Israeli and then Palestinian citizens of Israel youth, like 16 year olds to the sleepaway camp in New- upstate New York for like a couple weeks. And we would sort of do uh, like coexistence work basically. And um, the war was happening. And so we confiscated all that, all of their phones. And I have this really distinct memory because, you know, the, the, the Israeli kids have brothers or fathers who are like, been in the are in the army right now like they don't are going into the gaza strip and the palestinian citizens of israel have like family cousins who are in gaza or in the west bank who you know are facing down israeli forces and but we wanted to be able to kind of have this environment but basically i remember going into like the phone the phone room to like check my own phone not away from the kids during this during the war and seeing the first images of ferguson on online because it was the same summer um and so and i think it's both interesting to think of about think of them in tandem because at the time like black lives matter was so not mainstream at that in that time like the following fall i remember on on my college we staged a you know an occupation of the president's office to do to kind of like call for a black affinity space on campus and to rename um a a building on campus that was named after woodrow wilson who was a famous white supremacist and like this campus was not with the student protesters the administration felt no like they locked Mm -hmm. us in the president's office like it was an extremely hostile environment it was nothing like what what we've seen and then yeah, what we've seen after George Floyd. And I, I don't really know what to, how to account for like the leftward motion um, of the public on both of these issues other than just like maybe in a way like activism does work. Or at least, I mean, let me put it this way. Like di- the discursive interventions that activists are making seem to be working, but we're not yet at the point where those discursive interventions are like being trans- 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 translated into policy. This is certainly true on Israel-Palestine, where the situation's only gotten worse, even as more Americans like know about the occupation and willing to criticize Israeli policy. And I don't know. I, I think like it remains to be seen what the major achievements of policy achievements of Black Lives of Black Lives Matter is. But like certainly in the United States, it's very hard to point to like major policy wins that the movement has garnered. And like it's also easy to imagine. Like I'm very disillusioned about New York politics right now. That like, you know, Eric Adams, a former Republican police officer, is gonna could win, you know, the city's, you know, mayoral office after a summer of anti-police brutality protests. <laughs> <laughs> or Andrew Yang, who like basically just cheerleads any increase in policing, yeah. right? Like this morning, he did the same thing where he's like, more, more subway cops, you know, to catch. Uh, you know, turnstile hoppers and to make sure that the subways are safe. Um, yeah, it seems like they really, I saw somebody tweet this, but it's true. It's like, it is basically the reality that the two leading candidates who have any shot are trying to out, you know, cop each other. <laughs> like, who's the bigger cop? 
<laughs> yeah, at some point, like Andrew Yang's gonna like show up in like a village people costume. You know? <laughs> like, hey, what's up with this stupid bike helmet on? Um, uh, all right, well, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, Andrew. can I throw in something on this point? Uh, Josh made about the discursive aspect of all this because I think one thing that I think about is to kind of take the I don't know the Zionist question and kind of turn it on its head in terms of like why do people care about this so much? Um, and it can't just be a sheer, it can't be a sheer like voter strategy because if you take all the Jewish and you know Arab and Palestinian diaspora, that doesn't account for like a voter swing in the United States, right? So it really is this question of like, what does it represent to people such that it's like relatable to them personally? And I think that is, and I think that's it is interesting to kind of think about how that's changed. You said 2014 is like your turning point. I remember being in college in 2015. I'm not that young. 2005 when uh, BDS began and it was like this huge issue uh you know in new york city and i'm sure i think i mean my my sense is like 2005 or early 2000s is kind of the turning point for a lot of people maybe um but you know i was was thinking about um you know so i think like blm is an obvious analogy the other analogy gets made is like south africa and apartheid right um, and again, I was, I was, I'm still thinking about, you know, the book I'm reading, which is making the argument, you know, Khalidi says like, there's several discursive arguments to be made on behalf of Palestine. And he's, he brings up this comparative colonialism argument that, and it's like, it's useful, it's out there, but at the same time, Americans don't really respond to the critique of colonialism. They actually kind of think colonialism was good because that's how they got, they got the U S in the first place. Right. Uh, maybe that's changing. Uh, and then he kind of turns to this point of like maybe equality or inequality, and uh, related to that, sort of the hypocrisy, that, and you also mentioned this earlier, right? The hypocrisy of Israel proclaiming that they bring democracy and civilization and rights to this region, but they themselves are actually the ones denying equality to people who live in the region. And that might actually be a useful strategy, not just to like you know pressure Israel, but also pressure people in the United States to change their opinion. Um, yeah, so I, I almost wonder this kind of like. I mean, is it the case that to get things to change in Israel-Palestine, you almost have to kind of change the popular will of Americans um, as much as it is about like people in the region, right? Is that is that a fair thing to say? And then alongside that, then it becomes like this question of like, what does it represent? Not necessarily like, because no one's going to the ballot and voting for, and, and like, you know, are, are, you know, you know, championing Palestinian rights for their personal self-interest, except for like the sort of analogous lateral analogy between like what's happening to them could happen to me and so on and so forth. Right. Uh, so I don't know. I, those are just, just things. No, I'm it's interesting. About. I mean, I was, there's a lot to say. <laughs> I think, yeah, no, so sorry, a long I think, question. no, I think, um, it, what I was thinking when you were talking was that, you know, none of no, even no political struggle in any country takes place in like a, vacuum like um ex- like uh isolated from the broader like geopolitical situation and so you know in the 60s you have a very potent right. model of like decolonialization and also like the soviet union as an ideological counterweight that is you know right. helping like you know the arab nationalist movements um backing them in different ways uh as a counter as a counterweight to Israel, the U.S. backing Israel. Then in the 90s, with the end of, with the fall of the Soviet Union, that kind of creates the opening for, like, the depoliticized, like, peace model. That's I, I don't think it's a coincidence that the troubles 
is the Oslo Accords and South Africa like all happen in the at the very tail end of the Cold War because the juice of the Soviet Union as like both a counterweight in terms of resources to these to the those movements and as like an ideological alternative petered out and you ended up with like it 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 unleashed a lot of different things it made it created a political possibility and now we're in this weird moment where like i'm not actually sure like how historians in the future will look back on like the 2010s or 2020s of our century and say like well what was what was like the flavor of global debate i do think you're right i mean certainly palestinian activists in the united states have been increasingly turned to the equality framework as a way to try to explain to Americans why it's important, because you're right that like Americans until mostly recently, like don't aren't, don't really care about settler colonialism. That's not interesting to them. <laughs> yeah. um, they right. were really turned off by national liberation, you know, rhetoric because they're not going to be like, that's not what Americans like. And so equality at least <laughs> kind of speaks to at least the nominal values of the country. The one other thing I was going to say though, about, what's happening within the democratic party. And this is just conjecture. It also is going to get me moved into like potential cancellation territory, but I will, <laughs> but no, but in the sense that, so um, this, he's a writer. He used to be a, uh, an analyst at the Cri- international crisis group. Nathan Thrall wrote a really great piece in the New York times magazine, maybe two or three years ago about BD- BDS and why the democratic party was fighting this war, fighting an internal battle over BDS. And there's a number, I think it's around, uh, you know, two thirds and three fourths of high value of donors who max out to, to democratic candidates who are Jews. And like, if you are, a if it is for a long time and because American Jews have like a long tradition of liberalism, the donor base of the democratic party is in some ways like disproportionately Jewish. Whereas the Republican donor base has like other, you know, religious commitments and I, I've begun to wonder whether the kind of um, the swearing off of big donations um, by yeah. the Democrats has actually weakened the sway of the big ticket donors in the party such that you don't actually have to worry about pissing off. Like the famous one is like Chaim Saban, who is a really big pro-Israel donor, really close to the Clintons and like right. a big Democratic Party guy. But like maybe he doesn't matter if you can crowdfund your campaign like Bernie or AOC. And so I think yeah. that's, yeah. This is this is Khalidi's point that those, the pro-Palestinian, if you're younger, POC and liberal, the the, the support for Palestine is much higher. And the and overall, the Democratic voters are to the left of the party itself. And the party itself, you know, as you say, it's just in the cancellation mode, right? But, you know, they scare older and more reliant on big donors. And that's his explanation. And then he kind of sees Bernie as this phenomenon, uh, showing that maybe you can actually you can actually have candidates who reflect the social base. And perhaps, you know, with I don't know if like generational change explains it, but, you know, as 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 more people, um, you know, as, as voters get older basically. I, I think it's like I think focusing just on like written language or spoken language is, you know, one thing, but I, I think that it's sort of visual, you know, now with all the videos, yeah. like, uh, you know, if you watched the protests last summer here, and then you watch the videos of the Israeli police, then you can make like a very obvious corollary in your head. You know, and I think that's basically, I think that's driving a lot of it and that, you know, you, you see rubber bullets, right? Like when's the last time we talked about rubber bullets here, right? Uh, flashbangs, like all of that sort of stuff is, 
I think it's just sort of like a, you see something, it looks like the other thing, and it doesn't matter how many people on Twitter tell you that you shouldn't do that. You're still going to do it, you know? And I don't know. My sense is that you probably should just do it, you know? It's yeah. like, I, <laughs> there's, I guess there's a... Like, these things look similar for a reason. And yes, you can suss out all the nuances between how they're different. But right in the end, like, the thing that people care about, as you said, Josh, is that, like, they care if you frame it as a quality and, and, and like, you know, these police should not be able to do this to these people, then, you know, the, the analogy is very simple to make, I think. Um yeah, and uh, one thing I wonder yeah, is this: is this? I don't know if you what do you think about this, Josh. Is I think in the two thousands, whenever Middle East stuff was talked about, it was always about American greed for oil. And I think the contrast is I, I see less of that and much more about like policing, as Jay was saying. It's much more about analogies to anti-policing, anti-apartheid, and so on. Do you think that's a fair, you know, without even putting a value judgment, is that a fair description of the difference in? the way this is talked about. This isn't about like Israel as a client state to support United States oil hegemony and so on. Yeah, I think I think there's, I mean, certainly like in the circulation of images, the mil, the militarized police, the images of militarized policing, I think are, are I agree, are, are, are resonating. I think that also, I think the other big part of this is just that um, Netanyahu and the Israeli right is it got really, really comfortable with the Republicans and they got, they really, they've also kind of had their own, I don't like this term because it's such a voxy term, but they have like, they've had their own like epistemic closure, basically. They can't communicate (laughs) with people anymore outside who don't share their baseline suppositions. And that I think is partially why, you know, in, in Hebrew, there's a term for like what Israeli state institutions do when they like try to, um, like whitewash what they're doing to the broader public and it's called Hasbara and Hasbara means just explanation. And if you look at like what Israeli Hasbara looks like right now, it's incredibly weak. They don't have any, they cannot communicate why this is happening other than like Hamas is a terrorist organization. And I think that like that rhetoric maybe resonated with an American public that was used to hearing it about like Saddam Hussein or Al Qaeda, and like you know, even in the in a, like the more like highbrow world, like uh, you know the Hitchin, like Christopher Hitchens and Islamofascism, that discourse is basically unknown. I think to people under, I don't know, like yeah. thirty, and um, and so it doesn't yeah. resonate, and that I think is partially why. Um, and wh- whereas all the people who like write this stuff in English are like steeped in the neocon um, mm. talking points, and they can't, they've like lost the. They don't know. They've basically—I don't know—like they've they've gone high off their own supply, <laughs> and so like, they <laughs> they can't think about like they can't even put themselves in the position of like a young progressive who's like kind of curious about why this is happening. Annie, this this question is also for you. I want to read. Peter Beinert uh, wrote a piece in um, Jewish Currents that got passed around a lot that I thought was excellent. And it's called a Jewish case for Palestinian refugee return. And there's a portion of it that is sort of about what we're talking about that I wanted to read, which is, this is from the piece, quote, the consequences of these efforts to rationalize and bury the Nakba are not theoretical. They are playing themselves out right now in the streets of Sheikh Jarrah. The Israeli leaders who justify expelling Palestinians today in order to make Jerusalem a Jewish city are merely paraphrasing the Jewish organizations that have spent the last several decades justifying the expulsion of Palestinians in 1948 in order to create a Jewish state. What Ta-Nehisi Coates has observed about the United States and what Desmond Tutu has observed about South Africa, 
that historical crimes go in, uh, that go unaddressed generally reappear in different guise is true for Israel-Palestine as well. Refugee return, therefore, constitutes more than a mere repentance for the past. It is a prerequisite for building a future in which both Jews and Palestinians enjoy safety and freedom in the land uh, <clears throat> each people calls home. Like, what, like, I don't know, like, what, what, what do you, what do you think about those comparisons? Because that's what struck me the most, right? Which is, he's talking about this process of uh, refugee return and talking about the Nakba, which is the expulsion of, uh, you know, Palestinian refugees. And he's talking about how there's this sort of lineage issue where uh, Jews basically say that if you're the descendant of a Palestinian refugee, then you don't get to claim that status, right? And that, but that the big sort of ramp up here is to say that, you know, this is similar to what Tanahasi is saying about the U.S., what Tutu said about South Africa, like um, that, that you have to address this history in a concrete way. Uh, what, what, what do you think about that? I mean, if I could add to that, I want to hear Josh on this. This seems to also get at this question that you were mentioning earlier about how I think for you and more progressive thinkers, but this is also becoming more mainstream, the idea of a two-state solution is going kind of out of fashion, right? And Okay, Andy, just answer the question. You're 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 doing that. You're like wiggling to like well, some other question. Like, what what do you think well, I about think, that? Well, what, what I think I, what I think this analogy is getting at is that it was okay for much of the 20th century to do a sort of segregation of society, and that's what Ta-Nehisi is criticizing with Jim Crow, right? And that's what Desmond Tutu is criticizing with the party. And that also seems to strike me as why belatedly people are rejecting the idea of a two-state solution as another form of segregationism. That is. That sounded like a good idea in the 40s and 50s. That like half the like you know the obvious analogy for me is India-Pakistan, right? Where it's like divide people along ascriptive difference, like you know skin color, religion, etc., and that'll be the peaceful solution. Where I think in hindsight, in the 21st century, all those solutions look bad. In hindsight, and so it seems to me like I don't know is that what's happening, Josh, with regards to the seeming it seems like the idea of a two-state solution is increasingly coming under under fire as more segregation and more like, you know, fake separate but equal. And the real solution should be a, a one state with full rights for all. Yeah, I mean, I've been thinking about this a lot because the history of, of like the two state, one state question is like long and tangled. <laughs> um, and, and like, you know, the Palestinian national movement and its leadership as currently constituted still believes in a two-state solution because they are operating along the lineage of um, the post-war anti-colonial movements and their goal is a nation state. That wasn't, ironically, that wasn't always what Palestinians wanted and there have always also been Palestinians who advocated a binational state. Um, I mean, Edward Said also, um, you know, was an advocate of, of this in a way. Of the, of the one state solution, which is a great, actually it's a great, really prescient article that he wrote in the New York Times Magazine. It's like a remarkable how demonized Said was and forgotten this essay is by people, even though it was published in the Times in like the 90s and basically reads as totally, totally clairvoyant uh, today. Um, I actually think, maybe this is an unpopular opinion on the left, I actually think that had Israel wanted to, it could have, it could have reached a two-state solution. Um, I don't think there was like any inexorable, inexorable logic of Zionism that like led Israel to not want it, other than that like the political balance of forces in the country at the time like did not believe in partition. 
Um, and I, yeah, I, th- I think you're, I, I don't know. It's hard to say. Like, I think in some ways, yes, segregation doesn't make a lot of sense to people along national lines today. Although I think it's complicated because well, like, like you definitely are, there's definitely still different kinds of national nationalism. I think at least as I, as I've experienced it, it's, it's mainly, at least within the, like the U.S. Anglophone world, it's mainly around feasibility issues. I mean, that's part of the power of these slew of human rights, like human rights reports that have come out calling Israel an apartheid state. That basically what Human Rights Watch and then what B'Tselem, which is an Israeli human rights org did, and then Yeshdin, which is another Israeli human rights org did, was like kind of call the Israeli government's bluff that the occupation of the West Bank was temporary. And once it's temporary, then it's a one state. And if it's a one state, well, it should be a democratic state and not an apartheid state. That strikes me as the sort of what happened, at least for people who've like been, who are, you know, on the Israeli or U.S. human rights side who've been looking at this. Um, But I think there's always been a split in the Palestinian movement about whether the goal was, you know, if you were a Marxist, like if you were a Marxist revolutionary, then yeah, you wanted a, you were okay with a binational state in some ways, because like you were not, you, you wanted liberation, but you weren't committed to like a kind of bourgeois, like nation state. Whereas like Fatah, which is the, you know, the main party in the West Bank is, is the nationalist, um, you know, most sort of standard nationalist wing of the, the Palestinian national movement. Well, I, I think, you know, I think that what Beinert is saying and, you know, like, is more, yeah, I want to read another part about it, um, you know, which, uh, of this piece, which is, uh, still, despite these differences, many prominent Palestinians from Darwish to Edward Said to law professor George Bisharat to former Knesset member Talab al-Sana have alluded to the bitter irony of Jews telling other people to give up on their homeland and assimilate in foreign lands. We, of all people, should understand how insulting that demand is. Jewish leaders keep insisting that to achieve peace, Palestinians must forget the Nakba, the catastrophe that endured in 1948. But it is more accurate to say that peace will come when Jews remember the, uh, when, when Jews remember. The better we remember why Palestinians left, the better we will understand why they deserve the chance to return. So I guess what I'm what I'm trying to get at is that it seems like what he's prescribing here is and what Tan, is similar to what Tanahasi seems to prescribe for the United States, right? Which is that there needs to be basically like a reckoning, you know, like that that it is not about like small policy change. It is about like a uh, a way, and I don't know, like, I think that Ta-Nehisi in his more florid writing would say, like, you know, like, you have to, like, rid the eldritch, eldritch energies of white supremacy, I think it's like a phrase that he uses, right, that that this has to be, like, a big, big reckoning amongst an entire people. Um, I don't know, that that's sort of what I was asked. Like, do you find that convincing? Like, do you do you think that that is, or, or do you think that's what he's arguing? Because I think he is saying that refugee return would be the trigger for that type of reckoning. Um, do you, do you, do you resist that type of framing that like, this is just about a people having to deal with history and talk about history and understand what they did? Um, or, or do you think it, that perhaps like, you know, life is not, does not operate that way? Cause I, I don't know either way, you know, like I don't have an opinion on this. Um, but I was just curious about that because it seemed like the big type of framing that is, uh, you know, that, that is obviously going to get a lot of attention, but um, I don't know, I guess just as like a thinker, sometimes I resist, resist that type of big framing. Yeah. I mean, I've learned from Peter's writing for a long time. The thing about this piece to me is that it's directed towards Americans and American Jews. 
And I think the conversation is very different in Israel where, for instance, it's not um, like state institutions are barred from observing 1940, like the, from observing the Nakba. There are, there is a state, there are state sanctions for those who um, mention 1948. It is, it's, I think like within a set, not to get it like all theory, but like within a settler colonial society, I think the relationship to like the founding, maybe, I don't know, maybe this is going to reveal something about like America, but like the relationship to the founding violence is actually more complicated or like no, complicated is not the right word. There is immense denialism of what happened in 1948 among Israeli Jews on the one hand, while there is also a recognition that like, especially on the Israeli right that you see that like it didn't go far enough. Um, And I don't think that I don't, I, I think like from a moral perspective, it's certainly true that Palestinians need a right to return, especially if Jews from anywhere in the world are going to be allowed. But I don't think that like a national, I mean, you know, it's almost it's just having lived in Israel, it's just almost, it's impossible to imagine, it's impossible for, you to, for me to imagine Israeli society going through, going through a reckoning around the Nakba. Because, you know, if you, I, I've had this com- encounter with people who, who had, haven't heard about it, who I talk to about the Nakba, that like, um, so if you believe the Nakba happened, then you don't think Israel has a right to exist. There's something like recognizing that like the stain, the moral stain of the Nakba is like real means that you are somehow delegitimizing the state. I mean, it, this is, this gets like taken to its most absurd equivocation in Ari Shavit's book. So Ari Shavit is an Israeli journalist who wrote this book. It's kind of a bestseller in America called My Promised Land. And it has a chapter um, about the ethnic, the ethnic cleansing of the city of Lod or Lida. Um, and this chapter was published on its mm-hmm. own in The New Yorker. And Shavit calls uh, Lod um, Zionism's black box because for him, it's the truth that can't be acknowledged, but that also um, is unjustifiable, but like under his liberal Zionist ideology, like was absolutely necessary. That like the Israeli, the nascent Israeli defense force at the time had to march the 15,000 Palestinians out of the city and like, do had to ethnically cleanse that city for Israel to exist. There was no other way. And he's like, you can either for Shavit, that means that you can either like repudiate that legacy and repudiate the state, or you like embrace the state and like feel ambivalent about ethnic cleansing, basically. <laughs> right. I, I I think that is sort of the tension he's getting at, right? And that's why I found the 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 sort of call out to Tanahasi to be so interesting because I think he is basically saying you should think of, and I do agree that this is addressed to Americans, right? He's saying that you should think about it as, you know, the same way that right-wingers think about, you know, uh, talking about slavery, you know? Um, and I don't know. I, I was just curious what, you know, anyway, as a historian, what do you think about that? Um, yeah, I mean, I was, I was, it's not just, he's not just called, it seems to me that Beinart's not just calling for reconciliation and sort of like tears like truth reconciliation kind of sense but also right. like a material return of people to land yeah 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 right the refugee right yeah. in the same yeah. sense that Tanehasi is not just talking about some spiritual reconciliation but reparations yeah. right 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 exactly. and so yeah i mean i don't i don't I, in the context of the folly essay i don't know what he's how he would prioritize this but it does seem to be saying that you know this like you know you know josh was saying there's this, like this sort of like mental sort of 
hostility to this. Um, is it, it seems like he's saying like, you know, Peter's kind of saying like, we should just make this impossible policy demand that probably has no chance of passing in the status quo, but maybe, you know, bound up with it is this whole historical baggage that has to be confronted. So same, in the same way that reparations as a sort of impossible demand, quote unquote, um, has kind of pried open a debate in, in the U.S. about the history of slavery and its legacy. Right. Uh, it's like what Ta-Nehisi, I think, did it, which I thought was like his sort of ingenious move was, um, in the case of reparations. Like, if we want to talk about this stuff, redlining in particular, and, you know, this history in any sort of real way that's honest, and this has to be the demand, right? Um, that was the framing of it, and I think that he was correct in that. And I, I don't know. I, I, I thought that was interesting. Anyway, I'm sorry. <laughs> I don't mean to bring it up, but I just thought that that was an interesting part I'm, of it. I'm kind of curious uh, to hear... Excellent article. I'm kind of curious to hear more from Josh's side about being, you know, a, an American-born Jew growing up in this stuff. You've talked about kind of your the transformation you underwent, I guess, in, in college and so on. Like, what is like the common sense conversation about Israel in Jewish communities? And how, do you feel like it's it has changed in the last five years or so leading up to now? Like, the, is the biblical or, you know, the, the, the I don't know, the canonical argument, does it still have such a hegemony among you and your friends and all that? Yeah, I mean, I, that's a complicated question because I think in some ways, like the way that I grew up maybe doesn't exist anymore in America, in American Judaism, or like it's definitely on like the, it's definitely on the decline. Like I grew up going to a Zionist, day, like a Jewish day school, like a religious day school, which meant that, you know, I prayed every morning in school. And then I sang the Pledge of Allegiance and also the Israeli National Anthem. And in every event there was so i celebrate i grew up celebrating like israeli state holidays memorial memorial <laughs> day independence day um religious jewish holidays on top of like the normal american calendar um i half my day was in hebrew i you know it was a very israeli and expat community um and that is probably on like it wasn't orthodox. Um, I would say it, it was like religious nationalist, but like it was technically the conservative movements day school. Conservative in Jewish American Judaism being is a small C, so it's one of the or the big C rather. It's like uh, one of the you know it's one of the denominations. It's uh, a declining one demographically. Yeah. The reason why I said that is because I think that like the community itself is much more polarized. Um, you know, like I don't uh, today. today than it was when you know. I'm tw- I'm 27 now. So like then I was when I was even ten, even 10. Like in the last decade a lot of the sort of like nationalist on Israel but liberal and other in other ways I think people those people still exist but they're being they've been especially in America have just been polarized. Um uh and so like you know 75% of orthodox Jews are Republicans in large part because they perceive Republicans to be or it's in the 70s like I, I don't remember the exact number, perceived Republicans to be more pro-Israel, where like the opposite is true for liberal for for non-Orthodox Jews, who are overwhelmingly Democrats. And so I think that like the strange, weird middle ground of the community that I grew up in, where like I think for the most part people voted for Democrats, although not always. Like George W. Bush got a lot of, I remember growing up and George W. Bush got a lot of support because he was perceived to be better on Israel. Um than um than Al Gore. Uh, and, uh, yeah, I mean, 
I think that if you grew up in like what, what you say, what Jewish like demographers call affiliated, like if you grew up within the institutions like I did, I think chances are your politics are pretty bad on Israel. But the thing is, is like, I, although I will say that a lot of people I know who grew up like me and even much more observant um, have like come to understand what is happening in Israel-Palestine. But like, there's just denialism is the main thing. Like I never heard about the Nakba until I was... I had to like seek it out basically on my own, like personal, uh, like in college, a little bit earlier, like in high school, I was really trying to figure out what it meant because I was politicized around like, you know, Occupy Wall Street and like that kind of thing. And I wanted to be, I like felt very strongly about the left, but I didn't know what it meant to be like on the left coming from the background that I come from. Like my dad's side of the family is very observant. I have cousins in Israel and close friends there. And, um, uh, yeah, I don't know. It's, it was like a very intimate so, place. So what do you think triggered, you know, if you were to make like a generalization, you said you knew a lot of people from your background who have kind of moved to the left. What do you think in general? Is it like analogies with domestic issues like Occupy and BLM and so on? And that kind of forces that? Or what do you think has kind of allowed you all to move outside of what you're raised to believe? Yeah, I mean, it's a great question. I find myself being like, well, there is definitely a, like there's a preset for, there are like a pre- written explanation for this from like the right, which is that we all went to college um, <laughs> and we read too much critical theory and uh, you know, or like we're exposed to other people. But I think, I think the reality. Or you feel the social pressure of, you know, the people you're around at these elite. No, I, I don't think that's, I don't think that's actually true. Um, I think, I, I think for like the particular demographic I'm thinking about, like all of us spent actually, li- I think living in Israel is a shock for a lot of people. I think when you go there, as an American Jew who's taught to love this place, but who also is like basically a mainstream American liberal in whatever like 2008 terms that was. And you go to a country that is profoundly illiberal, that is extremely militarized, that like casual racism is something that you will encounter in a way that you never would have encountered in in the United States. Um, That just has Mm -hmm. a profound effect on you. And I definitely, in my own way, was like trying to find a path. And what really took me out of like equivocation was being in the West Bank. And once I think once you have gone to the West Bank and you've seen what is happening there in like a city like Hebron, um, which is sort of like the most graphic example of apartheid, it's this it's a it's one of the largest Palestinian cities in the West Bank that has a Jewish settlement at its center. And that's basically necessitated like most ordinary life in what was once the city center to have been totally shut down. It, the cost of this project begins to like weigh on you. And then for me, you know, another West bank experience was just, this was when I was on my gap year in this like pre-army program. And like, I remember going on a trip that was sponsored by the program to like meet our like peers in the settlement in the West bank. And the guy who's like in the settlement is explaining to us like, Oh yeah, we built this development. Then we're going to build on this other Hill. And I'm looking at these like huge apartment complexes made of like, <laughs> massive stone. And this is in a settlement uh, in called Ariel, which is really deep inside the West bank. And in that moment for me, I was like, there's never going to be a two state solution. These people are never going to leave the West bank. And so you will either have to come up with a political solution that like, you know, like the balance of forces in Israeli politics will have to change in such a way that you can forcibly remove them. I don't think that's possible at this point. Or some kind of confederation or binational state will be necessary because you can't have city. It's a city, basically. Um, 
uh, <laughs> like in the middle of what was supposed to be a contiguous Palestinian state. Um, the the last thing I want to talk about is uh, just sort of how you end this piece that you wrote with uh, with Mari and um, you know like what the what what the left can do um, here in the United States, right? So what 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 are some of the prescriptions that that you came up with. Yeah, I mean, this is what the left can do is like the perennial, uh, <laughs> the perennial question for for us. I, I, it's interesting now though, because it's so it like I go on TikTok probably more than I should at my age, but I see a lot of you know like Michael Brooks for example, or like normal or, or like you know Norman Finkelstein. Like I don't know why I'm seeing a lot of this, but I imagine it's just because of the algorithm or something like that. But it seems like to me, like the discursive way of talking about this is that actually this is not complicated, right? That this is actually quite simple. And that uh, if you oppose, if you marched for George Floyd, or if you think that, you know, oppression of people is bad, then, you know, you should get behind this. And it seems to be effective in a lot of ways. You see it in, you know, last weekend's protests everywhere. And so it seems like there is sort of a potential in the left right now that might not have been there even five years ago. And so... Um, I don't know, like, well, what what should be done with this energy? Like, uh, and is it real energy? You know, is it, I, I don't know, I was thinking about this yesterday because I saw Bella Hadid's video and I was like, I was like, well, you know, like, I never thought I'd see this. It seems silly to just dismiss it as being, well, that's just a celebrity. You know, Bella Hadid is, you know, of Palestinian heritage, but like, uh, and Gigi Hadid as well, like, you know, and, and, and celebrities everywhere, you know, but that's real energy, right? It's not something that one should just dismiss out of hand. And yet, obviously, it has its own limits, but it does seem like there's energy around this that I haven't seen in my lifetime, I don't think. Like, what, what do you think should be done with this energy? That is a great question. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, well, this I don't is mean to like, yeah. <laughs> <and not> <laughs> What should anymore. we all? Yeah, exactly. Well, you know, I'm just interested in reporting yeah, I, facts. I, just and, the facts. Yeah. I, I don't make, I don't make <laughs> prescriptions. I mean, you know, it's one of these things where, like, the the energy in the public it kind of outpaces what's possible politically in the current moment like you could certainly ima- yeah. i could you i think like people could call their representatives and encourage them to sign uh betty mccollum's bill that is wants to prohibit usaid from being used by israel to demolish palestinian homes and detain palestinian children and annex palestinian land but like that bill has ex- very few co-sponsors and there is a zero percent chance that it passes into american law just just a zero, right. you know, like in the current, mm-hmm. it's maybe, maybe it's one of these things where like, it's important to just keep doing it over and over again. And then eventually there'll be a president who would sign it into law, or it could even, there'd be enough senators who would agree to, you know, support it in the Senate. But we are so far from that. I mean, this is symptomatic of like America's, the American political systems, broader issues. Um, I think the other thing I'm going to say is it's definitely not going to win me any like, um, points with other leftist activists organizing on this, but I think that like the BDS movement, which is this call that was put on 2005 by Palestinian civil society organizations to push for boycotting for Israeli goods and divesting from Israeli companies and sanctions against individual Israeli figures. The first two parts of that are extremely hard to imagine in part because financialization makes divestment really hard for institutions. I mean, I, I think that there have been a lot of universities that have passed divestment resolutions by their student bodies that have not been implemented because, you know, the university mm-hmm. will say, like, we don't have any direct holdings in the Israeli company. And it's, I think that's a hard thing. The Israeli economy is also in some ways kind of insulated from 
really impactful boycotts and because its major export are like is like right. um weapons and cyber security and like surveillance <laughs> and so like the governments of of you know the gulf states and singapore and china and kazakhstan like are have, don't care <laughs> at all and they're <laughs> about, yeah, BDS. about bds <laughs> and so they have no problem <laughs> using this technology so they're gonna like the Right, right. They're gonna be like, "Oh wow, some kids at Wesleyan are mad." <laughs> yeah, and I don't know that. Like, I think like it's yeah. obviously like a good, important thing to do if you feel like you know the early boycott thing that people made fun of in the states. I was I was young when this happened. Was like around the Sabra Humus brand that like yeah. Sabra yeah. owners had donated to this Israeli brigade in the military that printed these T-shirts at the end of like their training course that were like extremely racist and misogynist. That was sort of, that's why Sabra got triggered actually, actually. Or like yeah, Soda Stream, right? Stream. There's another oh, one. Scarlett Johansson. Yeah. Giant with the incident at the Park Slip yeah. co-op. Um, Is Sabra still canceled? Yeah. I didn't know that. Should I not buy it? I mean, you... No, yeah. That's a personal <laughs> choice I do, but um, I, I, yeah, I mean, I, that has been stuff I always think is like an amazing way for young kids in college to get involved in politics because it personalizes uh, what could be seen as an abstract issue, right? They say, is the place where I'm paying tuition going to be supporting this type of thing? But I think you're correct in saying that practically with Israel, that perhaps it doesn't have, you know, an effect even in the ways that perhaps a divestment protest against South Africa in the 90s might have had some effect, right? Because um, that really was worldwide. Um, and anyway, I didn't mean to cut you no, off. No, I, I yeah. mean, um, South Africa is an interesting example because the economy was different, I think, in terms of like financialization of endowments and, and, and university funding. Right. And like, um, you know, the, the bill that also sanctioned South Africa passed over Ronald Reagan's veto, which like the whole, the whole political situation there is kind of like unfathomable. And it also took 30, you know, so BDS leaders will also mention this. And I don't know if the comparison makes sense in part because the geopolitical conditions are different, but like from the first initial boycott protests in the that began in the sixties really against South Africa. Um, it took 30 years roughly until 1986 when the Comprehensive Anti-Apartheid Act was passed by the U.S. Congress over. Um, so if you're right. starting from, I don't know, 2005 when BDS comes, okay, 15 years, we're in 2020, <laughs> like we have another, we're, maybe we're, like, I think if you were to say like we're 15%, we're 50% of the way there, not so bad. Like certainly the discourse mm. is... Um, <laughs> no, it seems I was going to say that's like we might be ahead of schedule. No, you know, uh, what's, uh, the head of one of the BDS leaders, I, uh, I, I think it's Omar, Omar Barghouti, who said this. He actually thinks that the, the Palestinian cause is ahead of the curve, it is, is huh, outpacing right. the Palestinian, I mean, the anti apartheid uh, struggle on its timeline. Um, I'm not so optimistic just because I think that Israel's economy is not as like, it's not as in, you know, South Africa was like dependent on export like raw materials exports and it's a different um it's a different situation okay so uh you know so you feel like like this sort of palestine children and families act which is betty mccollum's thing that that perhaps like the right now the barriers towards actually having sort of electoral political change or even economic political change are difficult yeah, I think in the same way that it's, it, you know, 
the U.S. Congress can't pass a $15 minimum wage. <laughs> it can't pass, you know, all yeah. the more so. <laughs> or, 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 or New York City's two mayoral candidates being like the, the two who are competing over who's the bigger cop, right? <laughs> like, it's like, uh, is, it, is it that type of situation where you feel like, you know, this energy is not representative? Or is it just that perhaps it is representative more than like a defund campaign might be in New York City, but that the obstacles are just much more considerable in that and entrenched. I mean, I think there are real obstacles. I think it's the institutions that are not them that are not representative. Is is what is what I would say. That in that it like just okay. in America, there's a lot. Of, I mean, Congress, Congress, and and election elected offices are insulated to it. I don't know. It's like we can you know, there's um, there's a book by this by the late uh, British political theorist. I think it's called um. It's about it's like the void is in the title. His Peter. His name it's is okay. Peter Mayer. Mi- it's a it's a longstanding tradition that we both misattribute books <laughs> to authors and we say the names of books wrong what on the show. Uh, <laughs> we even had an author on, and I said the name of her. Book ruling wrong. the void. His book <laughs> no, is called. So don't don't his worry. Book is called about ruling it. the void. Yeah. So and he has this kind of. It's a really. It's one of these books that has like a big big argument that's like political participation in Western democracy in rep, Western representative democracies basically on the decline that like people are not engaged with, with the day to day of, of governance. And I think that like, I find it hard, that thesis hard to uh, back up based on like the sheer level of participation in the last presidential race. But if you look at any mm-hmm. other race, it does seem like that is kind of true. <laughs> like turnout for local elections is minuscule the mayoral election is going to have a very low turnout. Um, these things are decided, like there's a massive disengagement from, from people. You know, I was at the Bay Ridge rally. There were probably 50,000. I don't know how many people there. That was, it was a huge rally. I've never been to a huge, huge. like yeah. gigantic. In Chicago too, where I was just like, oh my God, you know, <laughs> it's like, uh, how many people are there? Yeah. But, uh, San Francisco, they shut down like all the 16th Street, you know, which is a huge, you know, thoroughfare in the city. Um, no, but anyway, that also ahead. might mean that, like that's kind of where like the left, the like the ceiling of left mobilization is in being able to show up with like a couple tens of thousand protesters in major metropolitan areas. Um, like that's something that the European left for a long time has been able to do, but that you know doesn't necessarily translate into national electoral success in fact it might be the opposite that like i don't know like this and now i'm thinking about your you know the conversations that you you guys all had with um or like about toby's piece and also about uh brendan's piece but i you know i i keep thinking about like perhaps the left is still kind of like a subculture it's just a bigger subculture than it was before <laughs> you know like it's <laughs> right, it's a more right. it carries like a bigger, a high, a heftier weight, and like culture has been more like easily politicized in that way. In part because like it's where young people are. I don't know. I, I I'm generally not an optimistic person. Sorry, I just dropped it. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> no, that's okay. That's okay. You know, um, I think that, that that's sort of what we want. Like, you know, I think that if you were to come here and say that Betty McCollum's bill is definitely going to pass, and you know a lot of people in Congress are convinced like that's just not true right now. It was, it was sad to see that it was just the squad in Betty McCollum, you know, cause that's who you would expect it to be and that there was very few other, um, you know, there's not really support and that you had, you know, 
Biden saying sort of the, like what we call this. My theory with Biden is that basically like 80% of the time he's saying what his advisors are saying. And that's when he sounds cogent and, and you know, and, and with it. And then 20% his brain fritzes out. And this is not a senility comment at all. It's just like, you know, somebody who has like been a politician too long. And he just says like what he said 35 years ago or something. Yeah, the like cassette that, tape is just stuck Like off the yeah. cuff. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> just kind of like, he's just like, whoa. And then he's like, uh, and then people are like, whoa, uh, did you just say that? And he's like, what, what, what's wrong? And he's like, uh, you know, like that happened in like 1979. And he's like, oh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right. I don't know. But then again, it's like he had all the time in the world to craft a statement. And then he said it twice, you know. And so, it, you know, that I, I think it's perfectly fine to take him at his world, word on this and that he's not going to change, um, even though he seems to, you know, he changed his mind about like the vaccine stuff. So who knows? But uh, yeah, I think, you know, like, um, I, mean, Biden's like, I don't know that what, what, what else, anything else for the left to do? I mean, I think I, you know, I don't want to, I don't want to come off and be like, people shouldn't demonstrate. I think the demonstrations do have an effect. I think, I think if there were, weren't a lot of people in the street, AOC wouldn't have tweeted about, you know, apartheid states can't be democracies. I don't think that the squad would feel emboldened the way it does. I know that, you know, someone like Jamal Bowman, who, is actually has a district with a lot of right-wing like a large right-wing Jewish population has um you know it, it's it matters to him that like there are people who are going to show up and support him if he sticks his neck out on this issue and so I think that that I think I think that you know now now I'll like give a little bit of a rallying thing <laughs> like I think if I think if people if if people on the left can convince politicians that there's not going to be an undue electoral penalty for for making a comment on this, then the barriers will begin to fall. Just you have a conventional wisdom yeah. that's been built up for such a long time that if you like, why would you ruin your political career on Israel Palestine, which is the you know this intractable conflict, and there's no benefit to being like wrong on it. But if 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 activists can change that, then I think that's a big that would be huge. That would be a really big accomplishment for like the left to do in yeah. a, in a years long process of of convince progress and i think i think just because of the ideological sorting of the parties not to get all <laughs> box again like i think i think it will happen eventually because you you just will end up with people kind of voting down the line of like international social issues um and palestine will be one of them and black lives matter will be another and climate change will be another and you know you'll it, that is going to be more standard i think that is the case for like younger people i don't think that there's a lot of like weird heterodox stuff going on where like i'm a huge bernie stan but also like israel should bomb <laughs> hamas you know into submission like i don't think i mean i know there i know there are some people who are like that every single person <laughs> who has those politics has like eight thousand twitter followers and tweets six hundred times a day you know and then and their entire following is people dunking on their yes. tweets you know it's like it's just people <laughs> it's just people who like kind of exist as you know as like the person that people like to argue against on, on social media, I think. Um, yeah, I don't know. It's, it, uh, the, the, what you said about BDS's timeline is, you know, that, that's super interesting to me. It's just, uh, like, what is the realistic timeline of, of this? I'm not asking you that question. I'm just saying, like, I think that should be the, the question that people ask. And in, in, when they watch these huge turnouts, you know, and they, they sort of see it feeling different that perhaps, we're not at a point where there could be a policy-based revolution or change, but, you know, or even incremental change. And perhaps these things do have electoral consequences. I imagine that they do, but that, you know, that, that 
obviously there's going to be, if you think about it from a longer standpoint, like a lot of this stuff was inconceivable five years ago, you know, just as it was inconceivable, not, not to make a comparison. I don't know. Like I, I do feel like it's silly to make every comparison between this, but you know, I'm talking about social movements, protest-based movements as well. Totally inconceivable to think of a cop actually going to jail, you know, for, for killing somebody. Um, and, uh, you know, there are ways in which you can say that this is not enough. You, there's ways you can say this is a bare minimum, but it certainly is a victory for the, all the people who went out and protested and, um, and went through this process. And, you know, also the people who burned down the police precinct, you know, and instilled like a real fear in people. Um, no, it takes events. I mean, I, I was just not to go, to go back to the South Africa analogy. Like, you know, you have a th this 30-year timeline, but you also have events that happen. And, and, you know, in 1976, there's the Soweto uprising. And that's like the, the moment right. where these really graphic images of the white Afrikaner policemen opening fire on black school children in the Soweto township are broadcast around the world. And I think especially from like an American standpoint of doing like internationalist politics where the injustice you're trying to end is across the ocean in some ways it is contingent on the events that happen in that place. And, you know, I think between 2007 and 2014, Israel went to war against Gaza uh, three times in 2008, 2009 and 2012 and then 2014. Um, that was already like a big change. And then we had seven years of quiet, six years of relative quiet, basically. And I think that's why people didn't really hear about it. And so like, now you have this war and people are already primed a little bit. And it's another event, you know, unfortunately, and not that I, not that like the arc of the universe, moral arc of the universe bends towards justice, but like, if you, I almost yeah. said that too. And then I, <laughs> yeah. like, I don't necessarily, <laughs> I don't, I don't believe that as like a, as a law of like the universe literally, but like, you know, Israel cannot keep the Palestinians under its boot forever and there will be more events and, you know, the world will respond to them. Um, yeah. Yeah. People really like this has been, you know, this has been studied quite a bit and people really hate watching the police brutalize people, you know, um, regardless of their politics, it is not something it is generally the trigger for mass movements. Um, you know, this is why John Lewis walking across Edmund Pettus Bridge, having his head cracked open was such a powerful moment. You know, um, I don't know. I think that that's, you know, we're seeing those images. And, and I, I do agree that it accelerates the timeline quite a bit. Andy, uh, we're at like an hour 40. Is there anything you want to no, ask? Last thing you want to ask? I was just going to say that. It doesn't seem that it's a subculture within the Democratic voters right now. It seems actually the majority are on their side. So I think I, I agree that I think that this is actually not that far off, you know, from from like the whatever the, the threshold. And the other thing I would say is, you know, everything you've talked about, Josh, in terms of both American Jewish discourse, but also within Israel itself, the increasing isolation of the right is also a good, well, not it's bad, obviously, but in the long term, it could be a good thing in the sense that they begin to lose their you know, their hold on common sense, if they increasingly seem to be sort of, I mean, one thing I was going to, I was curious about was I saw on social media, someone proclaiming that the age old argument that anti-Zionism equals anti-Semitism is beginning to kind of show its cracks, right? That, that people are willing to like separate them. Whereas I think like 15 years ago, they're always just kind of conflated as the same thing. Do you feel like that's true? Like there are, that people are kind of willing to kind of distinguish it more? Or do you feel like that's, 
a little bit too early. No, I think people have premature. definitely been extinguished being able to distinguish it more. It's funny because it's like a, it's something I have a, I, I, I think obviously it's true. Like it's important. Like I, I, I argue all the time against the attempt to reduce Judaism to support for the state of Israel and the idea that criticizing Israel is anti-Semitic. But on the other hand, like my personal upbringing was that like my like Judaism was a Zionism. And so I'm always like, well, it's more complicated. And I've actually been surprised talking to people who are like, yeah, all of my Jewish friends like are anti-Zionist. I'm like, that was not true. Like I, I you know, not that like walking down the street on DeKalb Avenue in Brooklyn, where I, you know, <laughs> I live in that style, it's like, proof of any major political change but like that was shocked me you know that like it's kind of become the norm at least by people who know a little bit to be able to preface their arguments in that way um yeah i think i think that that i but i also think that that's something that was really happening on the left like you have to be pretty immersed in i think like left-wing or or left-ish like political conversation in order to be able to do that. And I think it's also very confusing for American Jews who were raised in a way that I was where like, you can't, you don't know how to disen- disambiguate things because you were, they are the same in your brain. Um, and it's very confusing. Right. Um, so, but yeah, I mean, I think the, I think like pal- the smart, smart Palestinian organizers are, are, you know, very adept at, at, at pushing away, you know, anti-Semitic rhetoric in the movement. I think that's also a big change um, is that people are much more, I think people are much more conscious of, of making this distinction. You know, I was at the, the Bay Ridge rally. We should say. I, didn't see. I was expecting to see, you know, a little bit more things that would make me un- uncomfortable and um, I didn't. Oh, interesting. Hmm. Yeah, they, those, we should say that those attacks still work, right? Like that is essentially the attacks on Ilhan yeah. Omar all yeah. the time, right? That, um, that she that whatever she says about this situation is anti-Semitic, um, but I do agree that their discursive finality is cracking up a bit. Um, okay, uh, yeah, we're at an hour forty-five, which is <laughs> you're We don't want to break the record that Wa Shu set because we promised if we would, so we have to end. Uh, I think it was an hour 53 or something like that. So, um, Josh, thanks for coming on. Uh, this is really informative. And um, I don't know, I just feel better educated on this, which I think is essential at this point, right? Because there is a um, there is a tendency to just sort of like do the thing that, you know, take a side and then, you know, pass around bits of internet video and, Uh, I don't know. I think that people have a responsibility at this point to at least understand the baseline of things, right? And to, I don't think you have to say, I don't think that the conclusion has to be that this is a complicated situation, right? But (laughs) the conclusion should be like, I at least know why it's not complicated, right? And um, thank you for helping our listeners understand a lot of things and sharing your perspective on all of this. And, you know, more than that, just thanks for to Jewish Currents for writing these pieces. Like the, uh, I don't know, it's just, it, I hope that anyone listens to the show will, you know, do it, subscribe and at least read these pieces. Uh, yeah, anything that you would like to, I guess I just plug the thing that you're, is there any, is there, what are some other resources that people should seek out if they want to get educated? Yeah, you this? plug you plug the site and we're going to be updating the, um, the the guide as as events un- unfold. So, you know, if you're, if you're curious about what's happening, well, that's, that site's going to be, we'll keep updating it. Um, you know, this, I used to work, I, when I 
for the other part time I lived in Israel, I worked at this publication called 972 Magazine, which is a joint um, Israeli-Palestinian uh, website. And they're doing incredible reporting on the ground there in English. Um, I highly, highly recommend following uh, following them. Their, their staff of editors are also amazing and are really good resources to follow on Twitter. I know like Twitter is like, you know, we all have ambivalences about Twitter, but I actually think there are a lot of people who are doing really good um, doing good stuff. Um, I mentioned before Al Shabaka, which is a Palestinian think tank, and they are you know, putting out a lot of really good material on this. Um, you know, my go-to like Palestinian policy analyst is a, is a guy named Tarek Bakoni who works for the International Crisis Group. Um, he also writes for the London Review of Books. You know, every time I read, he's in a beautiful writer, and every time I read what he writes, I, I learn something. Um, yeah, I think the you know that's that's what comes to mind immediately. Yeah, there's like you know there's a lot more that you could you could do, and um, but um, yeah, thanks for so thanks so much for having me on. It was really good to talk. Sorry if I ramble rambled yeah. it on. It is it's one of these. No, things. no, no, not at all. It's perfect. <laughs> um, yeah, the question of social media is interesting because I think that the thing that I've concluded is basically that social media is like a false equivalence like it's it is just a it's like a machine that makes equivalences a lot of them are false you know but it is also the machine in which people can sort of see things and then relate them to their own lives and make you know actual equivalences which i think is what's happening you know like i, I don't you know i know i've read all the literature about you know arab spring and uh the actual impact of social media on on these types of moments i don't know it it seems like you don't have this international outcry without without some form of social media so not to just say everyone should get off social media and just read white papers by policy experts and you know on, on this issue because i think that would be horrible and boring and nobody would care you know so um yeah a rare positive thing to say about twitter all right well thanks for listening to the show uh as always you can support us at patreon.com slash ttsg or you can sign up for our newsletter and subscribe there at uh what what, what is it? Goodbye.substack.com. Our Twitter is at TTSGpod. You can always DM us or you can uh, email the show at time to say goodbye pod at gmail.com. It's the first time I got all that out correctly, Andy, don't you think? I think, think you got the Patreon. You left, you left off pod. Oh, fuck. <laughs> <laughs> I was so proud of myself. I was like 80% through. I felt like Usain Bolt, you know, and Usain Bolt with the 100 meter dash. He starts celebrating like at the at like 90 meters because he's like, yeah, I nailed it. In my head, I was like, I nailed it. Okay. <laughs> Patreon.com slash TDSG pod. It's okay. <laughs> um, Josh, thanks for coming thanks on. Thanks for having me.